This is session 46 of A Better Brand of Happiness, and welcome back to it. This is our study, of course, of the book of Philippians. And over the past several sessions, we've been working our way through the paragraph that we looked at just a moment ago, that we read together just a moment ago, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. And as I've always done as in every session throughout this paragraph, I want to remind you and repeat for you the big idea that I've established for this paragraph. My big, the big idea concept is a one-sentence summary of an entire paragraph of Scripture, and the one sentence that I've written for this paragraph is that when Paul received the money the Philippians sent him, he was more grateful for what it meant than what it paid for. Now, this paragraph of Scripture, obviously from the big idea which references money, this paragraph has a lot to say to us about money. And let me just quickly review what it says for you this morning. In verses 10 through 13, Paul told us about money in the sense of contentment. And he told us that Paul had learned to be content through Christ's strength, regardless of whether he had a lot of money or a little bit of money. That money was irrelevant to his contentment and his joy because Christ had worked in his life and had taught him how to be content, whether he had a lot or a little. Then starting at verse 14, Paul began writing about the history of the giving of the Philippian church. And in verse 14, he suggested to them that their gift to him was good. And that word good signals the, uh, the fact or the idea that there was a moral goodness about them, the grace of God and had worked in their lives in such a way that they were willing to do something that non-believers don't typically do, which is to be generous with the money that they had. And so the kind of giving that they gave, the money they sent to Paul, was an indication of moral goodness, the kind that comes from growth in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul was more encouraged about what it said about them than what it paid for. Also in verse 14, Paul began using commercial language when he spoke about the money that they sent him. And he suggested that the money that was sent by the Philippians to Paul was very much like buying shares in a business. That to Paul, the Philippians' money was like buying a partnership with him in the gospel message. That's why it meant so much to Paul that they were willing to do this. In verses 15 and 16, Paul reminded the Philippians that they had a history of giving money to him. And this wasn't the first time that they had given to him. And he reminds them and tells us in verses 15 through 16 about their history of giving. That it started when they were young Christians, but that it was repeated over time. It was a habit that they maintained as they grew in their faith in Jesus Christ. And so as we looked at these verses, I said, like the Philippians, that you and I as Christians should start early giving to God's work, and we should give routinely and regularly to God's work through this local church. And so that's where we've been. That's a review of the passage so far. Now as we come to verses 17 through 20 in, the next, in today's session and the ones coming afterward, I want to take a minute and overview for you what we're going to learn in these verses. In verses 17 through 20, we're going to learn about what the benefits of giving are. Paul has talked about the history of the Philippians giving, and he's talked about how their giving is like buying shares in his ministry. But what is the dividend that comes from this? When you buy shares in the stock market, you hope to someday reap a return. Well, what is that return? What happens when God's people give to his work? 
What are the benefits that result? That's what verses 17 through 20 are going to tell us. And generally speaking, Paul tells us that everyone involved in this transaction benefits. It's a three-party transaction, and every one of us, every one of the parties involved, benefits in some way. The givers benefit from giving. The receivers, like Paul, benefit from giving. And God himself benefits from our giving as well. So that's our overview of verses 17 through 20. Now, this session is going to focus on the first of those benefits. It's going to focus on verse 17. And the first of those benefits, which is that those who give to God's work benefit through their gifts. Look with me again at verse 17. Philippians 4, 17 says this, Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. In this verse, Paul begins to talk about what the expected benefit for the Philippians will be. And in so doing, he tells us that those who give to God's work don't lose anything in the transaction. We don't, we, in a sense, we lose the temporary buying power of the money that we give, but Paul is going to say there's so much more that God promises to those who give, that it's more like an investment than like a gift. And so we're going to look at verse 17 this morning and take a closer look at it, actually, in order to um, talk about what exactly happens to the giver when we give to God's work. And so let's take a closer look now at Philippians chapter 4, verse 17. Philippians 4, 17, as you can see on the screen, says, Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. And the main verb in this verse is the verse that the word that says, I desire. Now, obviously, it's negated. Paul says, not that I desire. But the main verb is this, this, uh, this little two-word phrase in English, I desire. And this word in the original Greek is a compound. It's a compound verb, meaning that Paul took another word and added it as a prefix to the normal word for desire. So, there's a normal verb for desire that Paul uses here, but he doesn't use that verb, which he could have done. He added a prefix to it. Now, why did he do this? He did it for emphasis. Paul added the pre prefix to make this a compound verb to emphasize something to the Philippians and to us. And the emphasis is, of course, on the word desire. Paul is telling us not that this is some kind of a weak desire, but that is a very strong desire, that he earnestly, eagerly wanted something. And what he earnestly, eagerly wanted is first given to us by negation. He says, not that I desire your gifts. What does this mean? This means another gift from the Philippians. Paul tells them he has an earnest, a burning desire, but it's not for more money. And this um, takes us back to verse 11, what Paul communicated there. Remember there that Paul wrote these words, Philippians 4.11, I am not saying this because I am in need. Take that phrase together with here with uh, verse 17, not that I desire your gifts. So verse 11 says, not that I'm saying, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. And verse 17 says, not that I desire your gifts. And these two phrases clearly communicate that Paul is not trying to get more money out of the Philippians. He's talking about giving. 
but he doesn't want them to misunderstand that his talk about giving is a subtle attempt to try to get them to give more. In fact, he earnestly desires that they don't come to that conclusion. And that's because, according to verses 11 through 13, Paul had learned how to be content with what he had. So he's not trying to engineer more money out of them. That brings us to the second phrase in verse 17. Paul says, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. This is the point that Paul wants to get to. And again, the word desire is used. These are the same word, the same root word in the original Greek language. They're different forms. This one is a main verb, and this one is a participle, but they function the same way, and they are from the same word, and both of them are compounded. And so Paul repeats here, in a sense, the main verb of the of this verse. In other words, Paul used the word desire as his main verb in verse 17, and then repeats it again as this participle, and then again to emphasize to us, because it's really unusual for Paul to re- for, for anyone writing Greek to repeat a verb. The Greek language doesn't, doesn't require it. And it's really unusual for Paul, who's really economical with his language for the most part, for him to repeat a verb. And so the fact that Paul does this, again, is for emphasis. Paul used a compound to emphasize his desire, and he used the, the word desire twice in this short little verse to emphasize to us that he wanted something, but not what you might think, not that he wanted more money. Instead, what does Paul want? He says, I want that more be credited to your account. And so Paul repeats this verb to tell us that he earnestly desires something for the Philippians, not for himself. He says, it's to your account that I want this to happen. So what exactly is he desiring here? Well, that's answered in this phrase, that more be credited to your account. And the word that's translated that here in the NIV is a word that is normally used, it's the usual New Testament word for fruit. And in fact, if we look at the ESV, we see that they use this word. The ESV says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your benefit. Okay, that word fruit is that, is the word that, it's translated that in the NIV. And the reason the NIV didn't use the word fruit is because this creates a mixed metaphor. Paul is using commercial words in one sentence, and now he uses a farming term in another sense. That's a mixed metaphor. And so um, the ESV retains that mixed metaphor. The NIV takes it out in order to not be confusing. But what is Paul saying here? When Paul changes metaphor and starts talking about fruit, what is he trying to emphasize here? Well, the answer is that Paul does this um, in order to emphasize the result that he wants the Philippians to experience. And as I said, this is a change in metaphor from banking or commercial transactions to farming, but it's not that big of a stretch. We use the idea of fruitfulness all the time to talk about the product or the result that we want from something. And so it's not a huge change in in meaning or in idea. When you take an apple seed and plant it into the ground, and then you nurture and tend to it, you make sure it gets water and a sapling starts to come up from that apple seed, 
and you nurture and tend to that apple seed, you do that so that eventually it will mature. It will grow into a tree. And once that tree matures, that tree will produce more apples. And that's exactly what you do when you invest money, either in the stock market or in some kind of a, um, an investment vehicle. When you invest, you take something like a seed and you put it away. Okay, when you plant the seed in the ground, it's gone. You have no access to it. Same when you invest money in the stock market. It's gone. You can't spend it. Right? You put it away, but you put it away with the hope that it grows into something. You do that with money invested. You do that with seeds planted in the ground. You plant those seeds, and they go away, but you hope that something emerges from it that's, that's fruitful and that's productive. And so here's the point. Paul doesn't really want or need any more money from the Philippians. That's what the first part of the verse is saying. I don't need any more. But he does want them to keep giving, either to his work or elsewhere in God's kingdom. And so that's why he uses their gift to talk about the importance of giving, generally speaking, and says it's like an investment. Paul doesn't need the money himself, but he wants them to give not for him, but for them, for their benefit. He wants them to have gains in the future. And he cares more about their gains in the future than he does about his receiving money to spend. That's what my big idea is trying to say. And when the Philippians gave, it shows that they were buying into this, that they believed that there would be spiritual fruit for them if they gave. It said a lot about them. It said that they had the faith to accept that their investment in Paul was an investment that would pay off in eternity. And so this is what Paul is getting at in this verse. Now, the next part of this, this, uh, this verse, verse 17, says, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. The word credited means to increase, to accumulate, to multiply. This phrase and the concept here are similar to the idea of compound interest, which I talked about a couple of sessions ago, about how interest or investments can compound over time. And so as your money starts to make money, it multiplies. Paul uses that word here when he says, I want this to be credited to your account, or in the ESV, that increases to your credit. Paul's desire was not to take their money but Paul was willing to take it so that God would compound their giving, spiritually speaking, through his work. Now, let me give you an analogy to help explain this. If your employer offers a retirement program, like a 401k, I don't think, I'm not sure, but I don't think that your employer generally takes money for itself out of that retirement vehicle. Okay? In other words, if your employer offers a retirement program, the company probably doesn't make any money on the money you put into it. In fact, they match a lot of times, so they're putting more money in afterward. In fact, most uh, employee, maybe all nowadays, employee retirement programs are outsourced to money professionals, to investing professionals. They make some money, but the company itself doesn't. And like I said, if your employer offers some kind of a match for the money you put into the retirement program, then they're actually spending money on you that they wouldn't be spending if you weren't putting it into the retirement program. So why does the company do this? 
despite the fact that the company doesn't make money on the money you invest, and in fact, if they match, they're spending more money on you than they would or than they would have to if you didn't enter into the 401k, why, when you started working there, did they try to get you to enroll in the retirement program? The answer is because they want you to be able to retire someday. They want you to have money at the end of your productive life so that you don't have to keep working until you die, but rather that you can enjoy what they call the sunset years. They want you to contribute so that you will have that compounding effect and benefit as a result of it. They want you to be able to retire well, and so they encourage you to invest. This is what Paul is saying in this verse as well. Paul says, I want you to benefit in heaven. And the way to benefit in heaven is to invest in God's work now, to, as Jesus said, to lay up treasure in heaven, rather than compounding it here on earth where it can be stolen, or its value can be eroded through um, you know, the, uh, the problem of um, inflation, erodes your value over time, the stock market goes up and down. A lot of things can happen that make investing in this life not a guarantee. But Jesus says when you invest in heaven, you do have a guarantee. Jesus says money that's invested in God's work isn't destroyed. But rather, it compounds for eternity. And so here in verse 17, what Paul is trying to say is, you can keep giving to me if you want to. And I, he's encouraging in a in a subtle way, them to continue to invest in God's work in some way. But he's saying, I'm not doing this for myself. He says, I want you to have more. I want you to partake in the blessings and the dividends that come from investing in God's work. That's what Paul is trying to teach us in these verses. That is a closer look at verse 17 for us this morning. But what does this teach us? Paul says, I want you Philippians to give so that you will have investments and a dividend in eternity. But what does this teach us? And so that brings me to our big idea for this session, what I'm trying to teach you in this session from verse 17, which is this. Give to God's work so that you will be rewarded in God's kingdom. Now, Paul doesn't say exactly this in verse 17. He says, I don't want more money. I want you to have more credited to your account. But he's banking on some New Testament theology that he, I'm sure, taught them while he lived and ministered to the Philippians and that the Bible teaches over and over again in multiple places. And so I want to take some time and take you through the theology that undergirds verse 17 here. Why can Paul be so confident that if the Philippians gave to God's work, it would benefit them in the future? The answer is because of what he knew about the doctrines of Christianity, what the Bible teaches about eternity and about God's kingdom and how God will reward people in his kingdom. So I want to take you through some of that theology. I want to go to some other passages of Scripture and show you the theology that undergirds what Paul is teaching here in verse 17. So the big idea for this session is give to God's work so that you will be rewarded in God's kingdom. How does this work? First of all, you need to understand this. Every one of us will be judged by God. The Bible says there is a day of reckoning that is coming for every human being who has ever lived on earth. 
And when that happens, you and I will receive something based on the life that we live on this earth. There are many passages that teach this, but here's one of them. The book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 27 says, Just as people are destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. The judgment that the writer of Hebrews is talking about here is a judgment before Jesus Christ, who will judge all of humanity. Every living person who has ever lived will stand before Jesus Christ in judgment. And every one of us will be judged by God the Son. Now, in addition to that truth is this. The Bible teaches that faith in Christ is the only way to escape God's wrath on the day of judgment. And I don't have time to develop this, but I want to include it because I haven't been including the gospel much in these messages. And it's important for you to understand, if you've never become a Christian, that you're going to stand before God the judge and you're already condemned because you're a sinner. Every one of us, the Bible says, stands condemned before a holy God because we have sinned against him. We have violated his commands and his word. The Bible says that Christ came to save us from the just judgment of God that we all deserve as sinners. In fact, the very next verse, I read to you Hebrews 9.27 just a second ago, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. The very next verse, Hebrews 9.28 says this, So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of of many. On the day of judgment, God is going to judge sinners. But Jesus came to take the wrath of God, the judgment of God for some when he died on the cross. And so the verse goes on and says, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. On the day of judgment, there's going to be a split in humanity. Those who sinned against God will, be, will spend eternity apart from God under the judgment of God unless they have received the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And so one of the things you need to understand is, the first thing you need to understand about the judgment of God is that it's not based on your works. You can't give everything away and buy your way out of the wrath of God on the judgment day. If, if that's what you're thinking, if you're thinking, if I give enough money, God will forgive my sins, it does not work like that. Instead, Jesus came and died for our sins. That's the core of our message as a gospel-believing and gospel-preaching church, that Christ died to pay for our sins because we were unable to pay for them ourselves. And so if you're watching this this morning, either in person or online, and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's what you need for the day of judgment. You need to turn from your sins and come to God and receive the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ is the only way to escape God's wrath on the day of judgment. But what about those of us who do escape the wrath of God through Jesus Christ? What happens to us on the judgment day? That's the third principle in the New Testament, which is this, that if you escape God's wrath through Christ, you will be rewarded for your works of faith on the day of judgment. You see, there's a reward coming for those who are in Christ on the day of judgment. 
And the Bible over and over again says that what you did with your life on this earth as a believer in Christ will determine how your eternity in Christ is. Now, every believer is going to experience an eternity of bliss, an eternity of true happiness and joy in Jesus Christ, in God's kingdom. But the question is not, are you going to have an experience of bliss in eternal life? The question is, what capacity will you have to serve the Lord in the future? What will your eternal life look like? And the answer to that is, it all depends on how you live the life that you have now. The Bible says when a believer in Christ lives for Christ, we accumulate rewards in eternity. And we see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, which says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Paul says there is going to be on the day of judgment a reward given to those who have trusted Christ and escaped God's wrath, but that reward will be based on how you spent the time that you lived on this earth, whether you lived it for God and his work and his kingdom, or whether you lived it for yourself and your own priorities and your own pleasures. Now what Paul is telling us here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 17, when he says, I want more, I desire that more be credited to your account. He is talking about that day of judgment. And he is telling us the final principle about the kingdom of God is that part of your reward in eternity will be determined by how you use your money in this life. And by the way, it doesn't matter whether you have a lot or a little. Jesus commented, on a widow who gave a tiny bit of money in terms of its actual value, and yet it meant a lot to her because it was all she had to live on. And the implication of what Christ said is that her reward will be great in the kingdom of heaven, not because she gave a lot, but because she gave a lot to her. Your reward in heaven really has nothing to do with your prosperity in this life. It has a lot to do with your generosity in this life. And all of this that I've been teaching to you about how Paul uses commercial language and how he uses the gifts of the Philippians as sort of like an investment in his work, all of that is predicated or it's designed to bring us to this point where in verse 17, Paul says, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. What he's saying is, on the day of judgment, I want you Philippians to get a great reward before God. I want the dividends that you receive from your compounding interest given to the work of God. I want it to be huge because you invested a lot in God's work. And so that's why my big idea for today is very simply, give to God's work so that you will be rewarded in God's kingdom. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your salvation, your eternity is secure because it's based on him, not on you. But yet, statistics tell us that many Christians give little to nothing to God's work. What does this say about them? Well, it says one of two things. 
First of all, it says they don't actually really believe in Christ because they don't believe his word enough to invest in his work. Or secondly, it might indicate that they just don't understand the principle of sowing and reaping, the principle of giving and receiving, the very language Paul uses in another verse in this text. Maybe you never give to God's work because you don't understand the promise that God makes to those who give. But the promise that God makes to those who give is that you will be rewarded in eternity when you give to God's work in this life. And so Paul says, look, Philippians, I'm not trying to get more money out of you, but I do want you to have more dividends in eternity. And so Paul would have accepted their gifts, and he would have used it for the glory of God, as he talks about later. And really, I feel the same way as a minister of the gospel. God has provided for our church. We could do more if we had more, but we're not in a position where we are in need because God has provided for us. But when I think about our congregation, and I don't look at the individual giving records of anybody, but I just know from statistics that most Christians give very little, if anything, and that most of the giving in the church is done by a small minority of God's people. And so when I think about the giving of our church, I don't think about it in the sense of what we could do if we had more. I think about it in in the sense of what's going to happen in your eternity? How much more could you have been rewarded before Jesus Christ if you learned how to give and give generously to God's work? All of this requires faith. It requires faith that that giving to God's work actually will be credited to you. And that there will be heavenly dividends for it. And that there will be joy for you in eternity when you reap the rewards of your investment in God's work in this life. And so that's why giving is a big part of having a better brand of happiness. There is joy for those who give to God's work. Because God promises to reward those who give. Now, in the next session, we'll look at what happens to the receiver when God's people give, and and then we'll also look, either in the next session or the one that follows, and how God benefits from our gifts. For right now, I want to encourage you to be a giver to the kingdom of God, to God's work through the gospel, so that you can receive dividends in the future. It's true that money can buy us joy or buy us temporary uh, pleasure, But the old statement that money does not buy happiness is true, unless you invest it in God's work. This is a better brand of happiness.